listening to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast from Clear Creek Community Church, located in the Bay Area of Houston. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Ryan. I'm Rachel. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Well, we are wrapping up a message series called Faith and Technology. Rachel, what have you thought of the series so far? I think it's been great. It's given me a lot to think about. I've been convicted about a lot, and I'm excited to keep hearing more. Yes, it's been really helpful for me, too. So before we jump into today's conversation, I want to let those of you who are listening know about a faith and technology forum that is coming up at Clear Creek on Friday, April 16th. You can find more details about that on our website, clearcreek.org. We're going to have a few different speakers come in, talk for some really short talks, really practical things about how does faith and technology really intersect in our daily life. So you won't want to miss it. It is free and it's going to be a great evening together. All right, Rachel, tell us about today's conversation. Yeah, so one thing that we've been talking a lot in this series is not only the really great things about technology, but also how it can be distracting and it can cause problems um, like echo chambers. But the question is, where do we go from there? So when we put down our technology, what's a pathway to find information and wisdom from other places? So I actually talked to Brett McCracken, who is an editor for the Gospel Coalition and a writer. And he just wrote a book called The Wisdom Pyramid, where he talks about this very question. Where can we go? What is what has God given us outside of technology that can make us wise people? It's a really helpful conversation, and I, and I hope it's as encouraging for all of you. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited that you're uh, here. No, I'm excited too. Thank you for having me. So our church has been walking through right now a faith and technology sermon series. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about sort of the benefits and the gifts of technology, but also some of the downfalls and the dangers that are associated with it. So I first asked you to come and talk to us about echo chambers, that particular danger that we're all aware of now. But really, you just wrote a book that talks about echo chambers, but also puts that within this broader context of how we are um, ingesting and seeing information in this world, how we're orienting ourselves to technology. And so um, before we even talk about anything specific, why don't you just talk to us a little bit about how you see um, how we are just seeking information right now and sort of the, the problems you're seeing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, <clears throat> The, the, the really short answer of the problem is that we are formed by what we take in. That's just, that's always been true of human humanity. Like the ideas that come into you, just like the physical food that comes into you forms you physically, the intellectual kind of idea food that comes into you forms you. And um, I think what's changed in the digital age is just the sheer amount of information that's coming at us. So, there's three kind of dynamics of the information age that I focus on in the first half of my book, the wisdom pyramid. And it's the amount of information that's problematic. It's just too much for our brains, for our souls to be able to critically kind of (laughs) sift through. Um, So there's too much there's, and then it's too fast, right? The speed of information that's coming at us means that we're, binge eating information in unhealthy ways and we're you know just like just like fast food and fast food literally like mcdonald's isn't the healthiest form of food for you i think fast food information is also 
tends to be unhealthy because you don't properly investigate the source of, you know, where did this information come from? Is it really going to be the most nutritious? And also, once we do consume that information, we move on so quickly to the next thing that we don't fully absorb what nutrients there are or might be. Um, So the speed of information, the the glut of information, and then the third problem, which kind of speaks to the echo chamber idea, is the the orientation of information in the digital age is is around individuals. So um, no two people are having the same diet of information because there's so much out there. It's, it's literally, you can find information for whatever your like particular niche interest is. You can build your diet around that. And the, the, the mechanisms of social media are built to do that. They, they, they are incentivized to feed users more of what they like because that keeps them addicted. That keeps them on the platform and so the whole like structure of the internet is, you know, profit comes from the extent to which people are kind of online all the time and, and can't turn away and, and, and don't want to live offline. And the, and the way that you keep people hooked and keep people online is by giving them things that affirm them, right. That keep them, keep them like nodding along. Like, I like this. I, I, I agree with this. If we were, constantly being fed things that we disagree with or that are, you know, off putting, I think we might be more inclined to step back. Um, but the, the echo chamber orientation of information, um, yeah, it's problematic for a lot of reasons, right? When, when you can't come to conversations anymore with anyone because you don't know what set of facts the other person is coming with, because we're all reading different news sources. We're all, you know, listening to different podcasts and different perspectives. And it's, yeah, it's just a problem when (laughs) there's no more consensus on reality anymore. So those are kind of the quick overview problems that I discuss in the first half of the book, which is called Sources of Our Sickness. So what's the connection between these problems and the fact that we live in this really relativistic you know, uh, me-centered society, my, my truth is truth, and is there even truth? I don't know. So what's the connection between all this information, and I'm going to tell you what I think, and I want to be with people like me, um, but then at the same time, there's no such thing as truth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you're hitting on the fact that, like, technology isn't, like, the source of this problem. Like, it's it's adding new layers to it that's making it worse, but we've been in this kind of post truth, like relativistic progression for many centuries in, in Western culture. So I think the, the like history over the last, I don't know, 500 years has been a steady move from truth being something outside of yourself. It's this kind of authority outside the self to gradually becoming something that, we look within ourselves to find. And, and so now we're in this culture where we literally have phrases like live your truth, right? My truth is, is a, is a word is a phrase that we actually like hear in everyday conversation. Like my truth is blank. And that would have been a totally foreign idea, you know, to people 500 or so years ago, like 
even a hundred years ago, probably it would have been a weird thing to say, like my truth. But um, it's been a gradual shift, and now technology is just a—it's adding to the problem because literally there are mechanisms in place now where your truth can be justified. You can find, you know, quote unquote, evidence for your truth by googling, and the internet is such a vast space that you're bound to find something online, some other person who shares your particular, you know, perspective or story and you can build communities with people all over the world and start to believe, okay, this is, I'm justified in my truth because there's other people out there. There's, you know, facts, there's studies that you can find for pretty much anything you want to believe to, to, to back you up. So I think, so how does the, how does the technology sort of feed into that too? So we all want that because that's comforting and that's sort of this, you know, we can confirm what we already believe and we're just trying to find our find a truth. And so that's helpful. So how does technology make that worse? You, you touched on this before, but just but specifically what happens? Yeah, I mean, I, it just makes it easier, right? It's, it's literally like take out the device in your pocket, put in a question in Google, and you instantly have results that are tailored to you. So people might not know that, but a lot of how the search engines operate are that they they tailor it to you and your search histories and um, everything about the internet is built on knowing you and and kind of uh, the algorithms figuring you out. So that's sort of amazing in and of itself, which is amazing and super scary. And, (laughs) you know, if you watch that documentary on Netflix, the social dilemma, it really does a deep dive into this. And it's truly disturbing. It's it's big bucks for Silicon Valley, right? Because they can the more that they know each user, like down to a T, the better they can kind of serve you up to advertisers. So all of us have had those weird, creepy experiences when an ad pops up. Oh, somewhere. yeah. And it's so like you're talking to your kids about Winnie the Pooh, and then all of a yeah. sudden they're offering bracelets about right. Winnie the Pooh. It's um, and you're like, how did they know? Like, what did I do online that gave them that? <laughs> um, so all of that to say, yeah, the, the way that these technologies are set up is is to kind of make it as easy as possible for advertisers to find their way to you, but also for you to find content that is is something you will like. So to go back to what I said earlier, like profit comes from time on platform. So if I'm watching Netflix or something you know, before I even finish watching something, it says, it suggests like, watch this next. And it's something that the algorithm thinks I'm going to like based on what I've liked before. And sometimes that's really tempting. And sometimes I'm like, I do want to watch that next. I'm going to, they do know me, you know me well enough. And so, so they win, right? They succeed in keeping me on the platform because that's more money in their pockets. So yeah, I think for Christians, we just have to be so aware of these dynamics and and not just be passive and letting our souls be taken wherever the algorithm wants us to go. So, well, yeah. what I appreciate about your book is that you don't just offer these, you know, sort of criticisms of how we engage in technology. It's also it's a path forward. So, not only is this, this is not a great way to gain wisdom, but here's a path to where, um, as fo- followers of Jesus, we really can. Um, figure out what God has offered us as sources of wisdom and really plant ourselves in those places. So 
Um, before we talk about the pyramid, which I want to get to, um, tell me the difference between information and wisdom, because um, they're not the same, but they're, they are connected, but they're not the same. So, so sort of walk through that with me. Yeah, the, the first line of my book is, you know, we live in a world with more and more information, but less and less wisdom. So clearly, there isn't like a direct correlation between having more information and being wiser. I don't think anyone would look at the world today, which does have more information at our fingertips than ever before, and say, like, we have arrived at the pinnacle of wisdom as a culture. Um, I don't think anyone would look. Yeah, some people might. Some people might, but I, I just think you look at the craziness of headlines, and it's like, we are a foolish culture. <laughs> um so yeah, wisdom is, it's, it's not just about the facts in your brain. It's not just about the data, you know, that you store in your data processor. It's, it's more of an orientation. That's how I describe it in the book. It's, it's an, a moral orientation. It's, it's a way to live in the world based on the information, based on the knowledge you've accumulated, um, but also based on your loves and how you, what you worship and where your heart is directed. So that's one theme that I talk about in the book is wisdom involves not just the cerebral level, but like the heart and your emotions and your senses tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's why things like nature I talk about um, and beauty. So, so not that the, not that information is, is bad. We still need information, but there's just, there's more to wisdom than information. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a relationship between information and knowledge and wisdom, but it's not just as simple as like the more you know, the wiser you are, right? There's plenty of people who have like triple PhDs and are brilliant, like high IQ who aren't wise. And on the, on the other extreme, there's, there's probably like uneducated people in the world who have never advanced past the eighth grade who actually have, have a lot of wisdom and they've developed wisdom. So um, that's an important distinction to make. They are related, but there's more to it than just accumulating a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. One thing that is, is important is that wisdom functions as a way to better sort through information. So that's one of the like key ideas of my book is given that there's so much information more than ever before in our world. And, and there's this desperate need for us to better be able to like look at all of this information and tell like, okay, this is trustworthy. This is true. And this is false. And I can discard this and I, I can, I should pay attention to this. Wisdom is the, the ability that lets us do that with, you know, with some skill and accuracy, I think. So I, I think I compare like wisdom as like a healthy kidney, like it filters out the waste and it retains the nutrients and so when you, the wiser you become, I think the better positioned you are to flourish in the digital age where we're bombarded with voices calling out to us and information. And, and if you're not wise, you're just going to be kind of at the mercy of like where these voices are calling you and what they're trying to get you to do or believe. But when you're wise, I think you have a better sense for what what's true and what's false and what you should pay attention to. Just tell me the the basics of the pyramid because I want to spend a little bit of time in each of these categories because I think that each one is worth, you know, talking about um, 
in and of themselves. So just tell me real fast, what's the pyramid and then we'll walk through it. Yeah. I mean, I'll quickly just for those who haven't seen the visual, it's the, the concept is very visual. So if you can picture the, with the food pyramid, which we used in our childhood to learn, you know, what food groups we should eat and in what proportion the wisdom pyramid is very much the same way. So I, there's different categories that occupy more prominence and there's, you know, at the top of the pyramid, it's the least kind of healthy source. So I'll go from the bottom but up. But sometimes the most fun. But the most fun, right? In the food pyramid, it was like dessert was at the mm-hmm. top. So we all like that category a lot, but maybe not the most nutritious for us. So from the bottom of my wisdom pyramid going up, it's the Bible at the bottom. So that's the healthiest source, which hopefully all all Christians would agree that God's word to us, his direct revelation has to be the foundation of our wisdom pyramid. And then I have the church as the second level and then um, nature. Um, And we can go more into depth with each of these if you want. And then, um, and then books and then beauty. And then at the top is the internet and social media. So the, the, the kind of dessert category in my wisdom pyramid is the very thing that most of us actually currently have at the base. Have at the base. So that's yes. the that's the key kind of gut check that I wanted people to feel when they when they saw the visual of the wisdom pyramid. And it's true for me too, right? I'm guilty as anyone of building my diet largely around the digital experience. And that's probably why I wanted to write this book, just for my own kind of um, health. So yeah, it's, we flipped it and that's why we're so unhealthy. And that's just like, if you had a diet that was mostly a dessert physically, you would be super sick. And I think part of our spiritual sickness and cultural sickness in today's world largely is that we've made this potentially toxic category, our staple in our diet. Instead of the dessert. Yeah, I think I think that last point is the key here. It's like, if you don't have a solid foundation that keeps everything else in check, then you can't build a pyramid in, in any way. Like it's going to be this um, impossible project. Like you can't build a solid structure on a sandy kind of quicksand foundation. You need something sturdy at the bottom. One way that I describe it in terms of the wisdom pyramid is not only is it like the solid foundation horizontally, but it also has this vertical like scaffolding dynamic going on. So what I mean by that is like all of the levels of the wisdom pyramid above the Bible, if you took them out and just kind of tried to build wisdom only on nature or only on beauty or whatever, you would have great potential for error. Like you, it could lead you astray, but if it's tethered to the Bible in this kind of scaffolding, holding it in a, in its right place, then it can be really um, helpful for us. And it can actually lead us to truth. So the Bible functions as this great, like check and balance sort of thing. Like it's a grid through which you can evaluate the relative merits of everything else. So if you're reading a, book, for example, by maybe like an atheist. So someone who isn't um, necessarily someone you should believe everything they say, um, but you can still read them because you have the Bible as the ultimate, like, okay, is what he's saying contradicting the Bible? Then I'm not going to necessarily like 
take that to the bank. But but maybe he says some things that actually are are fine that you know don't you know have dissonance with scripture. And so I I think having the Bible as our foundation as Christians, it should liberate us to explore truth all over the place. It should it should be it should free us up to be the most curious people in the world. And sadly, I don't think Christians have that reputation. But if you if you start to think about it, the logic makes sense. Like if you have a solid foundation where you can check everything against the truth of God's word, then you should be able to, you know, look into all these sources and and see what truth they can offer, but also be able to recognize the falsehoods and the unhelpful stuff. Yeah. Well, I think your next uh, level in your pyramid, which is the church, um, which is, you know, God's community of people, um, that that is so important, not only when you're talking about the Bible with wisdom, because you really have to be studying God's word in community to be wise, but also, um, you know, sort of takes it to this next level of wisdom with each other. So tell me a little bit about that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think what I'm getting at with the church is um, both what you just mentioned. It's it's an essential interpretive community of scripture. So um, scripture is, we get the most out of scripture when we have a community that can kind of learn it together, figure out how to live applied scripture together. Um, I think sometimes the Bible can be dangerous or it can lead us into weird places. If we're, if it's just me kind of, it can be another echo chamber, really. It can be another echo chamber because we have a tendency as fallen humans to want to like read our perspective into scripture and make it kind of fit our boxes. So, and, and certainly church communities, if they're like homogenous church communities also can fall into that temptation of, paying some attention to this part of the Bible, but you know, neglecting other parts. So, um, but at its best, I think the church can be this nice um, community where every individual's um, temptations and kind of perspectives are, are brought in, but it's like the truth. We're better able to get at the truth. I think when there's multiple perspectives in, in our church community, Um, I also think just for spiritual growth reasons, the church is so essential. Like you can't grow much as a lone wolf in life, right? In anything, like whether it's a skill or a sport you're trying to improve in, you're not going to get better at it. If you're just like, yeah, I'll practice when I feel like it, like on my own, like (laughs) you need community for accountability. You need community for that iron sharpening iron of, people who can point blind spots out to you, who can like be a mirror to you. And ultimately the beauty of the church is that we're all pushing one another, like building one another up through the Holy spirit, working in our midst to kind of grow so that we're all kind of growing in the direction of Christ likeness and holiness. Well, I think that's a really great way to actually move to your next pyramid because your ne- your next pyramid, no, your next level in your pyramid, which is nature. And I think that one of the good gifts of nature is just that you see just the this this diversity within this unity of creation. Yeah, you know, um, in Christian tradition, there's this phrase, the two books. So there's like the book of the Bible, and then there's the book of creation. 
And it's this idea that God revealed himself specifically through the Bible, but generally through what he made through creation. Um, Just like you can kind of know something about an artist by looking at their canvas of what they painted. You can kind of start, you can make some assumptions about what kind of person would paint this. Like in the same way, if you look at nature and you truly look at it and you pay attention long enough to contemplate like what, what kind of God would make this like I'm looking at a camellia bush outside my window and hummingbirds and uh, bees. Like what kind of God makes this stuff? Like um, it makes me worship God because it's like, man, this creator is such a gratuitously loving God who didn't need to um, create such diversity and abundance he didn't need to make, you know, certain certain flowers and certain orchids that are literally designed for one other hummingbird in the world. Like they're designed for each other. And that's just crazy. It's just mind blowing. So there's so much opportunity to, to be led to a place of worship by being out in nature, um, to, to kind of be led to a place of learning truth. Um, even the Bible talks about this in uh, Romans 1. It talks about how like there are truths about the created order of things that even pagans, you know, should be able to intuit, you know, even if they've never heard the specific revelation of scripture through what God has made, there's things that we have no excuse to just kind of um, believe. And um, so I think that nature is so important. It's so neglected in the digital age, I think, because we live our lives through screens and on digital devices and even when we do go outside on a walk half the time we're like looking down on our phones which is such a travesty (laughs) and uh i see people like literally on a beautiful sunny day in southern california trying to get that picture yeah it's like it's like they're out in a beautiful nature mostly for the instagram photo walk i'm like uh but um Yeah. So I think just actually go outside, like go in your backyard, lay underneath a tree without any devices nearby. And just like, think about like, what is this thing? Like that God made like this art from an artist that, you know, we worship this God. So um, the heavens declare the glory of God says Psalm 19, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So essentially the Bible is telling us that, look to nature it's it's in this symphony of praise for its creator and so what an opportunity for us to to join in that symphony by listening to it well i i want to um move on even like you said we could talk about this for a long time to books because this is my favorite subject so i can't we have to spend some time on it um books give us wisdom um in a few different ways so just just talk to me about that but also Talk about the difference between, you know, a book that is fiction that's giving you a different type of information and nonfiction, which is going to be, I think, a different type of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. So um, I think that the two big ways that I talk about books as a source of wisdom. So obviously there's the content in a book, right? That's kind of the knowledge level and knowledge can help us become wise. So the more you read about different subject areas through books, you know, you can gain wisdom that way. But um, the other big thing is not so much what we read in a book, but just the 
process of reading itself helps us become wiser, especially in a digital age where we process information in this kind of fast paced, like fragmented way where we read a tweet here and we watch this video and we move so quickly. It's kind of like a mile wide, an inch deep. And there's actually brain science that's showing how that way of processing information, that way of reading is eroding our ability to kind of do deep dives into ideas. And so like it's becoming harder for people to read books in kind of long stretches because we just are so distracted. Like, and I find myself struggling with this too. Like I'm a big reader. I love books, but like sometimes I find it hard to like sit down and read 10, 20 pages without grabbing for my phone just out of habit, you know? So I've, I've now started to like put my devices way away when I read so that it's not even a temptation, but all that to say, I think the, the habit of reading a book is so helpful in, in the digital age because it, it trains us to be able to think more critically, to be able to go slower in how we process and how we think, you know, the act of reading a book is really the act of, following the advice of James 119 to be quick to listen, slow to speak, which we do the opposite in the on social media, right? We're quick to speak, slow to listen. But when you're reading, you're you're listening. You're listening to another person's perspective over a long period of time. Like if you read a book over like three weeks, it's like a three week listening session where you're just sitting there listening get lending your ears to this person's perspective. And that's just such a neglected art in today's world. We don't listen well. And it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humility. And, and it's not that we have to agree with everything, right? And that's one of the big points I try to hit in the chapter on books is you can read things you disagree with and, and not, that doesn't have to be a scary thing as a Christian to like pick up a book by, an atheist or a book by a, a, a liberal Christian or just something like that. Like we, we, sh- we, the more you read, I think the more you can read critically and you can kind of underline some things and agree with that, but then, you know, say no, like I, I often write no in the margin of books that I read, which is okay, which is okay. Yeah. It's, I think it's healthy and the, a, a true mark of because, because you're starting from your wisdom pyramid. And you're moving up. I mean, I really think that's a, a huge part of it. You're not saying no because you don't like it. You're saying no because you're, you're you know, growing it's in wisdom. Was, it's what I was saying about, like, freedom. Like, when the Bible is your foundation, it should free you up to, to, to pick up books that you might disagree with and that might, um, that you might feel like could be a threat, but it actually isn't a threat if you have a solid grounding in scripture because you can look at something and, and agree with some of it and disagree with, with another part of it. And that's like a, a dying art in our culture, right? Like in everything, like we, we were losing this ability to look at any given thing, whether it's a book or an article or a video or a Ted talk or whatever and say, yeah, like that's a good point. Like I agree with that. But that is is wrong. I don't have to adopt everything you're saying wholesale. You don't have to adopt everything that someone is saying. And we don't have to like write off a person. We don't have to cancel a person just because some of what they say is very wrong. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, I think that we're so quick to just dismiss people these days because some of what they say is wrong. And in, 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 in reality, life is complex and almost everything is a mixed bag of helpful and unhelpful. Even, you know, even Christians, right? Like not like we are fallible creatures. We are fallen creatures. So it makes sense that not, that nothing we say is going to be perfectly true. And so except for this podcast, exactly. I want to invite you listener to disagree with me on some of the things I'm saying, because that's wisdom. You know, it, it's not, it's not wisdom to say that at hundred percent of what that person said is correct. And neither is it wisdom to say a hundred percent of what they said is false. Life is just more complex than that. Well, I, I love that you, that you know these these upper levels that you're talking about with you know beauty and and books and nature because you know just like neurobiology says that our brains sort of don't work well with this too much information all the time. We're actually created for relationship and beauty and art. We we actually our brains work better when we slow down and we talk to other people and we read books and it's really amazing to me when you just look at the science of it, that God actually created our brains to work in these upper levels of wisdom. Amazing. No, it is. Yeah. I, when I was writing the beauty chapter, which I talk about like Sabbath a lot in that chapter, because I think the concept of beauty and Sabbath are tied together. So I, I, I went on this whole rabbit trail of thinking about sleep and like how interesting it is that God created us to need sleep. He didn't have to, right? Like theoretically he could have created humans to like never be off and to just have the energy to live without sleep. But he didn't, he created us to like, literally we can't function unless we sleep for half of our lives pretty much or a large portion of our lives. And that's interesting. And I think it's, it's good for us to like theologically think about that because we live in this always on world where the digital age kind of beckons us to optimize every moment and like be efficient and, you know, fill every moment of our lives with content and experiences. But if God himself like knew that we would flourish only if we took breaks and if we rested and, you know, if he, he instituted you know, the Sabbath, right? Six days he created on, on day seven, he rested. So if he himself saw that that was an important thing to do, then of course, you know, we need to as well. And, and the, the interesting thing with the, so one of the ties with beauty when it comes to Sabbath is when God rested on day seven, he, he saw that it was good, right? Like, so there's a connection between after you create, there's an appreciation that comes and you can only truly appreciate the goodness of things. If you take time to like be still and just kind of rest in the abundance, rest in the goodness. Um, and so part of the beauty chapter and why it's good for our wisdom is that it, it actually slows us down enough to, to just receive the goodness and to taste and see that the Lord is good through the arts, through music, through, you know, whatever, going to a museum, loving God is more than just knowing him. It's, it's enjoying him through your senses, right? God created us as sensory creatures. We're not just brains on sticks where we have the ability to see, hear, taste, touch, 
Um, and so if we don't use those senses to, to kind of appreciate the world, the, the goodness that God has made, we're, we're missing out on a, a huge component of worship. Worshiping God is wisdom. Like that can't, that is a huge part of wisdom. So, yeah. And I think that a lot of people are sort of afraid of, of beauty. They're afraid they're going to maybe make mistakes or it's just too subjective. So they'd rather stick with a brain on the stick mentality. But that's what I think is really helpful about a pyramid. You know, this, this illustration that you've given us is that when you begin with, you know, God's truth that is given to us, then you're able to enjoy and embrace and experience not not only not only grow in wisdom, but experience God and enjoy life like he created us to uh, with discernment and wisdom. Yeah, for sure. And I talk about that a lot in the beauty chapter, because part of the reason why I put beauty second to the top, like in terms of like maybe danger zone area of the pyramid is because I do think the arts have a lot of potential to go wrong. Like, as we know in our culture, like a lot of art, a lot of music, a lot of movies like are kind of toxic and they, they, they are going off track. So there is great potential for harm when in the kind of arts and beauty category, but there's also great potential for edification and for, for wisdom. But the difference and this, and this is key is that we have the Bible to kind of check things against. So if, if beauty is untethered to biblical truth and, or contradicts biblical truth, then it's not going to be helpful. But um, there's plenty of beauty out in the world that um, is totally consistent with God's revelation. And right. So beauty is kind of like remixing God's creation. Every, every human creation is sort of like a remix of, of God's creation in a way. And um, so if at its best beauty helps us see God's world and appreciate God's world in a new way. And sometimes like, for example, like Vincent van Gogh's painting starry night. If you can picture that painting, it's a beautiful painting of stars. Like that's an example of how art can somehow make us, it can make us appreciate the starry night more than we would have just gone outside and looked at the starry night. Like sometimes it's an interpretation to just, yeah, it's, it's a putting the spotlight on some aspect of creation in a way that makes us attend to it in a new way or like think about it in a new way. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting overlaps of nature and beauty, I think. Well, I think that technology, which you don't just jettison with, you keep it on your pyramid it's not, you don't want us to just uh, go off grid somewhere. So it's still there, but it's, it's like beauty and maybe more in that there's a lot of danger. We don't, you know, it's at the top, so we don't want too much of it. And also we have to just n- not, not that we don't want too much of it, but we have to know how to interact with it. Yeah. I mean, I did, I, I have it on there for a reason. Like I, I don't think it's realistic to live without the internet where there's no going back. <laughs> um, and so I don't want to call Christians to like throw away your smartphone and, you know, live off the grid somewhere. Um, because I think there's actually, there is a lot of good, you know, the, the internet has made it possible to do all sorts of amazing things missionally, right? Like um, it connects us to Christians all over the world. We're, we're having this conversation right now in part because of the internet and digital technology. So there's amazing opportunities and, 
I've actually met some, some of my best friends through the internet and through connections I've made on, on social media and the internet. Um, so there are good things there. Um, I think it's just, it's just an area that we need a lot of discernment. I think it's really actually dangerous when every open space in our lives begins to be colonized by digital content so that we don't have any open space to think or just be still or to reflect. So be intentional, try to only go online when you have a specific thing to do and then stay online only as long as you need to. So once you're done Googling that thing or reading that article that you've been recommended to read, you know, go offline and (laughs) do something offline. So I think that's, that's a big one. Um, I think another big piece of advice is just go slow. So, um, a lot of my advice connects back to the problems, right? Not too much, not too fast, too fast. So if, if a big problem of the internet right now is that it's the speed is just not conducive to wisdom, then part of the answer for how we can flourish online is just going a bit slower and maybe, um, instead of tweeting your opinion immediately, when you see something that outrages you, like take a breather, like take a few hours to think about it. Um, you know, utilize your drafts folder (laughs) so that you can come back to something. And, and if it still feels like a good thing to say, then you can share it. But we get into so much trouble when we're so fast that we like share something online that we maybe will regret. Let me ask you one more question um, that's related to that. Um, So we're talking about technology and our faith um, and how we interact with technology in a wise way. But what really is the end of wisdom? Because I think it's one thing to say we want to be wise people. We want to engage in the world with wisdom. But what are we really moving towards? You know, what's, what's the goal of wisdom as followers of Jesus? Yeah. I mean, I think the goal of wisdom is, is, um, God, right. He is the source of wisdom. He is wisdom embodied. And one of the big themes in the book is that wisdom is really proximity to God. So the, the layers that are at the bottom of the pyramid are the closest kind of sources to God. And the ones at the top are a bit more removed. Um, and so it makes sense, right? If you are living a life of proximity to God, if you, you feel his presence, if you love his presence, if you love worshiping God and, and in, in everything you experience in the world, if you have that lens of like, this is an opportunity to worship God, reading books that help inform me about the world he has made, seeing beautiful art that testifies to the abundance of God, like going outside and, and seeing you know, a mountain range or a river, like, or a tree, like everything becomes an opportunity to worship God. And so I think that true wisdom is characterized by that, a pursuit of God and and his presence, a desire to worship him, to glorify him. You know, the, one of the catechisms, uh, I think the Westminster catechism begins by saying the chief end of man, right. Is to, to glorify God and enjoy him. Right to glorify God or is it by enjoying him? I I maybe have the phrasing wrong either way. I think it's getting at this idea that, you know, we, we flourish as humans to the extent that we are glorifying God by enjoying him. Right. 
Um, and um, so that's what wisdom leads us to do. And that's how we become wise. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. This was um, a really great conversation. I'm thankful for your book. I think it's just uh, full of wisdom and it leads us to a path of wisdom. And I'm grateful for it and for all your other work you do at the Gospel Coalition and everywhere else. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. So thank you guys for listening today. I hope this conversation was as challenging and hopeful for you as it was for me. We're going to link to Brett's newest book, The Wisdom Pyramid, um, where you get the podcast at clearcreekresources.org. You can also find articles, videos, answering questions about faith, music, and much more. Again, I'm Rachel. Thanks so much for listening. 